The views in this podcast are the participants' own and are not the views of their respective companies. Welcome to Aerox's Legacy Life, the podcast asking, what does a career in runoff insurance or reinsurance actually look like? I'm your host, Katie Reynolds, and today we're joined by Peter Scarpato, Senior Collections Officer of Seated Reinsurance at Ace Brandywine. Hi, Peter. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Katie. What does uh, being a Senior Collections Officer entail? Well, as the name suggests, uh, I'm on the uh, seated side or the outward side of the business of reinsurance. And what I do primarily is focus on um, collecting balances, collecting money from either reinsurers or retrocessionaires who are on our on our back end uh, of the business. And that covers the gamut of doing any everything from negotiating uh, to collect, uh, contacting you know companies directly. Uh, getting 100% collections, sometimes negotiating settlements when necessary, to directing and working with in-house and outside counsel to collect uh, balances. And how did you end up in this role? Well, um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I my career sort of arced towards doing this kind of work. I mean, I, I began, uh, if I w- I'm a lawyer by background, and after a year clerkship, in the 1980s, I worked for a law firm uh, as a litigation associate handling asbestos, uh, mostly asbestos litigation. So that's where I cut my teeth on the insurance side of the business and specifically on asbestos claims, which we all know is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and from there, I, I don't know if you want me, how you want me to cover that, but from there, I sort of went from role to role to role in, in some different different companies and and eventually on my own for a while uh, involved in this business. I can give you that if you'd like now, or we can get to it. No, I, I you know, uh, however you think it's, it's important to lay it out. Uh, Cause I, I know people come at this business in from all different paths. I also was an attorney who ended up just in claims and then made it into reinsurance. So, uh, and I've, I've heard stories from other folks that no one really plans, it seems, to come into uh, reinsurance. It always just seems to happen. And it's kind of like, well, how, how did you get here? How did you do this? You know? So, uh, yeah, if you just want to kind of walk us through uh, what sure, happened. Sure. And it's very interesting because that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, after after working as a lawyer in at a uh, associate at a, a large litigation operation for a few years, I realized that front end litigation wasn't necessarily for me, and I left there and took a job in New York for a year, doing something totally different. And I, a a friend of mine who used to be in that law firm. I was working as a senior manager of a company called American Centennial Insurance Company. And in 1985, he said to me, we need people, we need lawyers. And he said, I said, what's the, what's the business? He said, well, it's reinsurance. And I said, well, I've done insurance. What's reinsurance? He said, oh, it's, <laughs> his comment was, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's easy. You know, you'll get it right away. There's no problem. Oh, no. Uh, which of course was a little bit of a, a little bit of a, you know, uh, of an exaggeration, obviously. But that was my introduction. And I, I went, I interviewed, they hired me. Um, I was hired with another ma- gentleman who's also been involved in the legacy space, Bruce Shulin. We were, we were lawyers together starting there in 1985. And from there, I mean, I, I, that was the job where I really learned 
the sausage, how the sausage is made in reinsurance. Um, and over the years, I was there 12 years, I eventually became general counsel of the company. It was totally in runoff. All of it's all of it. It was a large PNC company, all in runoff. And, you know, you learn things like how to negotiate, how to, you know, manage uh, outside counsel, how to deal, you know, work with arbitrators and the arbitration process. And I really sort of enjoyed that. And I, I, I sort of got into that side of the, of the business. And from there, when I left there in 1998, 97, I went looking for a job and lo and behold, the same guy who had introduced me to ACIC was now working for a, a broker and he heard that AIG had a large book of runoff business and they were looking for a runoff manager. So he thought of me. <laughs> so he, oh. he, he gave me that intro and I got that job and I worked there for seven years and five of the seven years I was involved in help in running off old legacy business of different types. And after that, my dream was always to be a reinsurance arbitrator. Um, and I finally got to uh, achieve, you know, that dream in 2005, I left there and I became a full-time arbitrator and mediator, which I did for almost 10 years. I had a company I formed wow. called Conflict Resolved LLC. I did that for 10 years. And then after 2008, and the financial crisis, some of that business started to dry up. So my last role is my is the, the company I work for now, which is the Brandywine branch of Chubb doing uh, seated collection work. So so that's the arc of my career. And, you know, legacy and, and runoff was a huge part of that and gave me many, many good opportunities. Yeah, it sounds like it. Did you have any experience with, a, with, with active business or was it all legacy? Well, I, I had experience with active business outside when I was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did some insurance work, I had some experience there. I really had no experience after that with active business uh, until I got to AIG. And what happened was at AIG, for four about four and a half years, I was dealing purely with runoff. And then I guess they liked me and they saw me as a management prospect. So they moved me into the surety business which I had never done before. That's different too. <laughs> they moved me in as a senior, as a senior officer, as chief operating officer. And eventually they moved me in as the profit center manager. So for two years, I was dealing with active ongoing surety business. So I kind of learned a little bit about the, the active business there. And um, really not so much after that. Tell me about being an arbitrator. I mean, that's that's not something I've encountered yet, uh, folks. You know, when I've been doing these interviews with folks, that that's very different. So, what was that experience like versus being the you know the person dealing with the claims or um, you know trying to get conflicts resolved? Part of it was was an outgrowth of something I really wanted to do. You know, when I started as a as a as a lawyer, the first thing I did was I clerked for a judge for a year, and one of the things the judge had on his docket was small claims. So he he said to me, "Look, I want you to set up a group of the other clerks in the in the courthouse, and I want you to have sort of like a mediation sessions with these with these clients and try to get these cases settled." And I got a taste of what it's like you know, debating and trying to 
get people to move, you know, one way or another to get to a, a resolution of something and evaluating what it, what it might be, what its worth might be. So that gave me the bug. When I got to the law firm, I convinced them to send me to uh, Harvard has an incredible segment of their, of their curriculum, which covers negotiation for executives. And I did a three-day training session up there in 1982. Uh, and, and that gave me the bug. I said, I had to get into a dispute resolution. Nice. So fast forward, when I dealt with, our, I, I, when I was at American Centennial, I dealt with a lot of arbitrators because we, we had a lot of arbitrations ongoing and I started to learn, you know, how these people operate and what they do. And, you know, I'm like, wow, they, they basically have their own, it's their own business. You know, they, they, they're not in an office every day. They work at home a lot of the time, but they also have to deal with these complex problems and then deliberate the three, you know, three arbitrators have to deliberate and try to find a resolution and figure out what's the decision and what's the right decision. So I got the bug. I really wanted to do that. So I finally did it in 2005. My company was called Conflict Resolved LLC. And the great thing about being an arbitrator and an umpire, which is the kind of the swing vote, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like the judge, the ultimate judge, is you really, um, you are really forced into a role where you have to not only evaluate evidence and how it weighs against what the standards are and, and and whether or not one side or the other has the has the better case but you also have to deliberate with some very experienced very knowledgeable people um, and that's the the other panelists you know, the three arbitrators have to deliberate and they have to come to a resolution I love doing that. I enjoy negotiating. I've done it my whole career. I've read probably every book. I mean, I, every time there's a new book that comes out, I read it. So I really enjoyed that. The other thing that was very good for career-wise is it gave you exposure to lots of people in the space because there were a lot of runoff companies who were involved in disputes and involved in arbitration. So you got to meet the executives. You got to see them testify. You got to deal with their cases. Part of the reason why I was hired when I was, I mean, I was 59 years old when I was hired at Chubb. We used to be Ace, now Chubb, was because the, some of the people there, I had been their arbitrator in cases. So that I was kind of a known quantity, you know what I mean? A known entity. Yeah. They knew what I could do, how I could do it. So to fast forward back to your question, I mean, it's a, it's a great experience. You deal with people who are involved in the, the legacy runoff space. You deal with people who are very knowledgeable and experienced, and you really have to bring your A game. And you also, you know, learn how to evaluate cases and, and see, you know, what's the right result. No, I'm not going to ask specifics, but did you find yourself often as a party appointed or were you an umpire more often than not? Um, most of the time I was party appointed, but I, and I enjoyed being the umpire for lots of reasons. And I, I sort of told people that and sort of near the end of the the 10 years, I was getting more and more umpire roles than arbitrary. It's harder to get to be nominated, to be selected as an umpire, but I was getting more and more opportunities to do that. So all in all, all in, I think I was appointed in over 120 cases and uh, probably, I'm going to say probably 35 of those or so, I was the umpire. So um, I enjoyed that. Now, why the preference? Because uh, you mentioned you enjoyed the negotiation, and my understanding is that the party appointments kind of negotiate for yes their sides. So, uh, why the preference for umpire? 
Well, there's a couple of reasons, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very candid about it. The first reason is when you're a party appointed in, in the U.S. arbitration system, which is not, you're not a uh, neutral, there's a lot of extra expectations that come with that role. And you really have to, you know, yes, you're supposed to evaluate the evidence and yes, you're supposed to weigh it fairly. And I'm not saying you don't do any of that, but Mm -hmm. you also know that there's somebody who appointed you and you're their spokesperson. Right. And that carries with it some extra responsibilities. And sometimes expectations are very high. So I, as I learned, as I did more and more of these cases, I sort of liked the role of umpire because you didn't have that, you weren't tethered by some of that. You also had the ability to step back and say, okay, putting aside, you know, the, the, the fire and brimstone coming at me from both sides, <laughs> let, let's just look at the evidence and let's just look at you know, the credibility and let's, let me, you know, let me do something which is not influenced by who appointed who. And I I really enjoyed that. I I, I like the freedom of that. That's really why to be very, to be very honest. The other reason why is when you're the umpire, you sort of manage the process. Umpires usually take the first shot at dealing with objections um, unless the party arbitrators want to chime in for some reason. And, And I kind of enjoyed I had a good rapport with people and I kind of knew how to, you know, when to hold them, when to fold them, when to be a little more aggressive, when to send, send messages that were necessary. I kind of enjoyed that part of the process. So that was the other reason. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, while working as an arbitrator, you, you saw a lot of people in the space, you met a lot of people. Uh, I also know that you have worked with AROC uh, quite a bit over the years, same, yes. similar sort of experience, met a lot of people got to interact with a lot of folks in the space. Yes. Interestingly enough, when I was at AIG, they were if not if not one of the founding members, they were they were on very very early on on the scene when AROC was formed and uh, Chris Milton was the head of reinsurance at the time when I was there. Uh, he knew I was I was uh, involved with AROC and he said to me, "They have these meetings and why don't you go?" you know, instead of me, because I'm busy and, you know, Hank Greenberg has a lot of demands and why don't you go and why don't you be our representative? And, you know, I'll show up when I need to, or if it's something really important. So I got involved and I'm guessing now, maybe a year after they started. And and I really enjoyed public, I, I write, I'm a writer. I enjoy writing. And I enjoy, I, at the time they were, they had, a, they were, had a publication committee, which is now morphed into the digital content committee. And I became a member of that and quickly became the editor-in-chief of what was the magazine. They used to publish a magazine every uh, quarter. And uh, I became the editor-in-chief. So for 15 years, I served as editor-in-chief. And then eventually I got on the board of AROC. And then I became the chair of the committee for a few years. And yes, that was an, that's an incredibly valuable experience because uh, you go to the meetings, you meet all the people in that space, you deal with them, you deal with them on the committees, um, in a way that's not necessarily adversarial, but, you know, is congenial, you know, you're working together to, to accomplish something and you get to know them, they get to know you. And it's just, it was just a, a lot of good exposure. You know, Carolyn Fahey does an incredible job, a really incredible job. And I was there and I, you know, I, I, I worked with Trish Getty, who was very good as the executive director. Um, but Carolyn really sort of brings it up, raises the bar 
Uh, and as a result of that, you get, you're given a lot of opportunities to interact with people on many different levels, even on a, on a social level. Uh, more so now, I guess, we're, as we're going back, coming out of COVID, that'll, that'll begin Fingers again. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So, yes, the experience there was very good for me. And then even after we, even after I left the board, which was last year, I stepped down and Brendan McQuiggan, who was my boss now at Brandywine, he's now on the, on the uh, board. Uh, I'm still a committee member of the Digital Content Committee, and I'm working with them to find uh, unique and relevant stories for publication for the monthly virtual newsletter and also for our publication on our website. So that's been a, I mean, I've been involved, I guess now it's probably, I don't know, 16, 17 years uh, with the organization and it's, it's done nothing but help my legacy career. Uh, speaking of the publication, do you guys solicit for stories or articles or how, if someone was interested in getting involved, how would they do that? Well, there's a, well, there's a couple of things we do. The first thing we do is we just watch what comes out on the internet. You know, the beauty of social media and the publication that we do now is that we can just, if I see something I like, I can flip it to the committee. And if they, if they like it, we, you know, we put it on a newsletter. But yes, mm-hmm. the answer to your question is yes. We also, through connections, we will ask people if they want to submit original content, you know, for publication. We also ask when people do presentations for AROC events, we will ask them, hey, do you want to, instead of us summarizing your presentation, do you want us either write an article or if it's based on an article, do you want us to publish that on the newsletter? So we will ask, you know, I I think in the most recent newsletter, we got an original article written by, and her name just popped out of my head, and I feel awful about this because I actually worked with her for many years, an article on uh, on, on uh, IBTs, and it was written, just written for us for the newsletter. You know, we do, do, we do solicit that, yes, and people can, if people are interested, they can get in touch with either Carolyn Fahey, of course, because she also works on the committee, or Marianne Taylor, who is uh, sort of the digital content manager who um, orchestrates getting all the content together and working with the IT people that we have to make sure it's published correctly and on a timely basis. So um, yes, we do look for, for original articles from people. So how do we get more young professionals interested and involved in legacy. I know both you and I kind of fell into our, our respective legacy careers, but any idea as to how to kind of draw people who are young professionals, maybe haven't decided what they want to do yet into the industry? Well, I think there's there's several ways. The first way is one of the obvious ways, which is when people, especially young people who are looking for a career, when they hear runoff or legacy, they're thinking, well, if it's not active business, you know, is this a dead end? Right. And I think I think the word has to get out to young people who are looking for challenging, complex careers that take them to uh, places where they really have to shine and and where they can be rewarded. Let them know that there is a future working in the legacy space, especially the more that they learn and the more that they get involved handling the business, because really one of the biggest issues we have today, I believe. In, in this space is attracting younger people to come in and to sort of look at it not as a short-term jumping stone into something else, but as a career that they could they could stay with and grow in. 
So I think we have to get the word out that there are many large professional organizations that handle and assume this, this business, which need, you know, solid, dedicated and smart people. Also, the legacy business, it's been slow to do this, but it's really catching up now. The legacy business needs to morph more and grow with advances in systems and also social media capabilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, young people I know are (laughs) are interested in that um, uh, just because that's the nature of the beast these days. Those advances and those capabilities, uh, there's a need for that in legacy just like anywhere else. And, And I think that Sort of the background to this, I don't want to, I don't want to be on a high horse for too long, but I think it's important. <laughs> I, I was around when, when legacy, when runoff really had a bad reputation, um, you know, it was just seen as bad apples who were trying to rig the system mm-hmm. to get out of paying claims, policyholders and seedings. You know, I think that ship has sailed. Legacy business is obviously now a recognized and accepted segment of the insurance and reinsurance business. A lot of credit, by the way, for that goes to AROC companies, entities like AROC and AROC in particular, because they really legitimized the space and established it, you know, runoff and, runoff and legacy as, uh, you know, necessary segments of the business. But that, that, that's gone. That's over. This is, this is, a, this is a, a necessary part of the insurance business and the reinsurance businesses for people who have this particular unique set of skills to take, you know, a block of claims and a block of, of business that's been shut down and manage it and manage it after perpetuity until it's over. And those, there are so many different challenging and, and exciting careers that circle around handling this business, you know, from, from actuarial to being a biller, being collector, being a negotiator, being a lawyer, being an, you know, an accountant. There's so many skill sets that revolve around handling this business that, there's opportunities. I mean, I was talking to a young person about six months ago, and they had a, a background in finance. And they were like, well, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether insurance is right for me. And I said, really? I mean, there are so <laughs> many. You, you don't know. What you don't know will hurt you. I mean, if you really understand how the business works right. and the needs of the business, you'll fit right in. You know, you'll have a job. So, uh, you know, again, uh, I, I'm really, I really feel very sort of emotional and charged up about this because it was so good to me. This business is project. I mean, I think asbestos, depending on who you ask, is projected out 30, 40 years. There's new kinds of, of business that are segments that are being put into runoff by various companies for various reasons. There's the, you know, the new, the new types of vehicles that are being approved and, and enacted in the U.S., where companies can restructure and take some of this business that they, they want to sort of run off and put it into a different entity. So there are many, many opportunities. And I think, you know, what I, what I say to people when they ask me, especially young people, is get to know somebody in the legacy space. Talk to them. Ask them these kinds of questions. See if you can, like as an intern in a summer, you know, while you're at college, see if you can work at, at, a, at a place that has insurance or runoff business if they're looking for interns who have good, you know, Excel skills or whatever, ask people about the kinds of backgrounds and degrees that would give them a chance to be considered for these kinds of positions. You'll be surprised. You know, you'll find out that there's a lot of opportunity. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights and some great advice with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Okay, well, I think that about covers it. We're just going to uh, cue the music and close this thing out.
Thank you for joining us today. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcast app to help other people interested in legacy insurance and reinsurance careers find our show. ERIC is the only U.S.-based nonprofit association focusing on the legacy sector of the insurance and reinsurance industries. The global non-life runoff market is sizable with an estimated $875 billion in reserves, and it's growing. Runoff solutions provide flexibility and capital release as insurers look to find ways to underwrite the quickly evolving risks demanded by consumers. AROC serves the industry by providing education, networking, information, and data. Learn more about what we do at www.aroc.org or contact AROC's Executive Director, Carolyn Fahey, at carolyn at aroc.org. That's A-I-R-R-O-C.org. See you next time.